0: The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is actually the, the next book that we'll be working through together as a congregation and i 'm excited about the, uh, what the Lord will teach us through the uh, the book of, of daniel uh, actually right now i 'm still uh, mapping out the book, gathering all of my resources for the journey ahead of us, uh, so it 'll be a few weeks before we jump into the full exposition of Daniel. Uh, but what I found in the introduction of Daniel was so helpful and so timely uh, that i didn 't want to wait a few weeks. To share it with you. So uh, you can consider this like the, the trailer to the, to the full movie. Uh, but we're uh, just going to introduce the book of uh, Daniel today. Uh, we'll have a, a short series that we're going to do in between now and uh, the beginning of Daniel. Uh, but like I said, I just wanted to introduce uh, this book to you. I think it's obvious to all of us that we're living in a world that's in turmoil and uh, the world's attention uh, right now is fixed on what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And uh, we're already three weeks into a, uh, a bloody war where multiple thousands have already lost their lives. Uh, we don't know when or how this will end and uh, what other countries may get involved uh, before it stops. And uh, from what I've been hearing, we're nowhere near to being done. Uh, we're dealing with, on top of that, our own domestic issues at home. Uh, shortages, supply chain issues, strikes, inflation, falling stock markets, sorry to remind you about that, rising crime, violence, drugs in our own city we're outpacing the murder rate from last year, and many of you are going through your own personal turmoil. Uh, Just this week, uh, during our uh, small group, uh, we went around and shared some prayer requests uh, together, and it was just a, it was a heavy time. It was, it was a sweet time, a sweet time of prayer as we're praying uh, around the circle for the the members who were there, but it was also a very, very heavy time as well. You just never know uh, what somebody might be going through who's sitting right next to you in church. Uh, But this was a a heavy time for us, and uh, as I thought about that, as I thought about all these things, the things that are going on uh, across the world, the things that are happening, happening nationally, the things that are happening uh, personally, as I thought about all that, I kind of tossed out my original idea of what I was going to preach on today uh, because I wanted to remind all of us uh, that there is a God who's in charge and he's worthy of our trust and devotion and he hasn't lost control. His, his hands aren't off the wheel of the universe uh, while we experience these different things uh, that we face in this life. God is in control. He is sovereign over every circumstance. And the book of Daniel reminds us about that. Daniel is a a part of a long and faithful line of biblical writers who believed in and taught the sovereignty of God. Uh, He sees God as the primary mover uh, throughout human history, uh, from the rise and fall of a nation uh, to a personal decision of a supervisor uh, to a dream in the night. God is in charge of all of it. And Daniel sees the divine intention in absolutely everything. Uh, from the fall of a nation, back in chapter 1 and verse 1, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. But in verse 2, it says that it is the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You know, so, so the kings are moving, the kings are doing things, but it's the Lord who's actually behind the scenes who's at work. The decision of a supervisor in chapter 1 and verse 8, we're told that Daniel sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. But then in verse 9, it says it was God who granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. You know, Daniel might have had a request, but it was God who was granting that request. God who was granting the favor from the supervisor. And in chapter 2 and verse 1, lets us know that in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. But in chapter 2 and verse 28... Daniel says, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in latter days. God is even in charge of what you dreamt last night. The hand of God is evident in every chapter of this book, and it's really the great theme of the book of Daniel. The sovereignty of God over the nations. There there is a God who swallows up kings and emperors, cities and kingdoms, and this is a a truth that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn, finally came to understand in chapter 4, in uh, verse 34, uh, you can read it there, it says, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Who who, who calls God into an account to say, hey, hey, you have to report to me and explain to me what you're doing down here? Nobody brings God into their office. God is the one who's in charge of absolutely everything. And it's what theologians refer to as the sovereignty of God. We refer to a a sovereign state uh, as a a, a nation that controls what happens within its own borders. But God doesn't have any borders. (laughs) God God is in control of absolutely everything. Absolutely everything is under the control of God. I love what uh, A.W. Pink said about the sovereignty of God. He says, what do we mean by this expression, the sovereignty of God? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay His hand or say to Him, What do you do? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleases him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords, such is the God of the Bible. And he's right. anything less than this is not the God of Scripture. As Psalm 115 in verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens and he does what? Whatever he pleases. God does whatever he wants. Psalm 103 verse 19 adds this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And the sovereignty of God, like I said, the unimposed Uh, unopposed rule of God is the focus of every chapter of the book of Daniel. Uh, God is repeatedly called the God of heaven or the king of heaven, which makes it clear that it doesn't matter how high the mighty kings of the earth become, they're still beneath the almighty. You're still underneath the heavens. And all that's displayed in specific statements makes this clear about the rule of God. In uh, chapter 4 and verse 26, where Nebuchadnezzar says, your kingdom will be assured to you and after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. And Nebuchadnezzar had to recognize that it was heaven that rules. Earth doesn't rule. Hell doesn't rule. Heaven rules. Heaven rules. And the ruler of heaven is the most high God. The sovereignty of God is displayed in the titles given to God throughout the book of, of Daniel. He's commonly referred to as the highest, the most high, the great God, the God of God's. In chapter 2 and verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings. In chapter 4, verse 17, he's called the Most High, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. God does whatever he pleases. And the sovereignty of God is demonstrated in the superiority of his kingdom over the kingdoms of men. And everywhere you turn in the book of Daniel, the nations of the earth are revealed to be nothing more than, than the chess pieces that God moves around on his board. You know, you can't even boast about being a king because there's somebody else who's moving you around. God is the one who's the, the Lord of kings. In Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. It's God who is over the kings. So how can I boast about my kingship when I understand that the God is the one who's over my kingship? He's the one who places me and he can remove me whenever he desires. And every kingdom besides God's kingdom is temporary. And that includes Russia. And that includes America. And that includes Ukraine. Only God's kingdom will not be destroyed. Only God's kingdom will not be destroyed. And when Daniel explained the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, he spoke of God's eternal kingdom, the kingdom that will not be destroyed. Chapter 2 and verse 44, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So what you find in the book of Daniel is God is making it clear that these other kingdoms of the world... As powerful as they may seem are just temporary pieces in God's divine scheme, and God can bring down these kings at will. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's punishment demonstrated. You know, after seven years of eating grass like an ox, he finally got the point. "I'm not in charge here. God can put my nose in the dirt and make me eat grass if he desires. At the end of that period, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes toward heaven and my reason return to me. God can remove your reason and make you wander around like a beast if he desires to humble you. And this is the same point that Belshazzar was supposed to get when he saw his death sentence written on the wall. You know, while he's boasting great things, he he wants to bring in the vessels of the Lord to drink out of, and all of a sudden a hand appears out of nowhere and writes his death sentence. Your time is up. (laughs) You're, 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 You're out of here. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. There's no more perfect book to speak about God's sovereignty than the book of of Daniel. And not only does he speak about the God being sovereign over the kingdoms, he also speaks about uh, the kingdoms to come that God is sovereign over. Daniel actually has a vision of the end times as well. In Daniel chapter 7, Verse 13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There's really no more perfect book uh, to kind of introduce us to the end times than the book of, of Daniel. Uh, because the same thing that we see acted out in history is the same thing that will repeat itself in the future. That there are parallels between the past and the future that are utterly amazing in the book of Daniel. Daniel's actually been called the apocalypse of the Old Testament or the revelation of the Old tes- Testament. It's, it's really a companion to the book of Revelation. Listen to these comparisons just about what happened and what will happen. We learn in the book of Daniel uh, that the Babylonian kings acted arrogantly and boasted great things about themselves. You know, isn't this not Babylon that I have built by my own hands? You know, all praise goes to, to me, right? Boasting great things about themselves. And Daniel says that in the future there's going to come another one who will also boast great things about himself. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24 it says, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings and he will speak out against the most high. Who's that talking about? It's talking about the future antichrist who will boast great things about himself just as these past kings boasted great things about themselves just as it appeared that nobody could be delivered out of the hand of the Babylonian kings. Remember when uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was about to throw the the three Hebrew boys into the furnace? And he says, what what God is there that's going to deliver you from my hand? Nobody can deliver you from me. But in the same way, there's going to come a future dictator, and it will appear as if nobody can be delivered from his hand. Uh, But in uh, Daniel chapter 7, it says that there will be will be given to him in his hand for a time, times and half a time, referring to the three and a half years of the great tribulation, that he will wear down the saints of the highest one and will intend to make alterations in times and law. And this king will also be taken down. We will be delivered from that king in the future. There will be those who will be delivered from that king in the future, the Antichrist. And just as the kings of the past were crushed and made to recognize that heaven rules, so will that one to come in the future be crushed to recognize that heaven rolls Daniel chapter 7 again, it says, but the court will sit for judgment. In chapter 7, verse 26, his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatest greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And the point that I really want to drive home with all of this is to say that God wins. It doesn't matter what the chess pieces are doing on the board. God is the one who moves the pieces around and wins in the end. It's it's checkmate for God every time, right? There's a God who sits on his throne and his sovereignty rules over all and the future generations will experience the great tribulation, but after that they will experience the, 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 the sovereignty of this great God who will rule on the earth. And Daniel's day needed to know that. Uh, our day needs to know that. And there's coming a future generation that needs to know that. And uh, what we are talking about here when we say that, that God wins is that we're on the right side. <laughs> if, if you're serving God, you're on the right side you know what what sense would it make to to sacrifice uh for this god if this god loses in the end it's like uh, what elijah says you know if baal is god then follow him right but if the lord is god then then follow him we need to know that we're on the winning side this one is the one who is god and jesus is that lord who will win in the end and we have every reason to hope Uh, every reason to be motivated, to to continue to battle, to struggle against sin, to agonize over holiness, to persevere in adversity, to bear up under trials, to endure persecution. The kingdoms of this world are not going to last, but there is a kingdom to come that will last forever, and the architect and builder of that kingdom is God himself. Uh, So we need to remind ourselves Uh, that we're on the right side, and that God's sovereignty rules over all. Why don't you flip back to Daniel chapter 1 just as we introduce ourselves to this book again. Daniel chapter 1. Like I said, the believers needed to understand who was truly in charge. Let's take a look at Daniel chapter 1, and we'll just read verses 1 down to verse 7. Daniel chapter 1, starting at verse 1. So it's in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And then verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, Lord, and uh, we just ask that Uh, You would grant us uh, your help, Lord, as we uh, look into your word. Uh, Father, this is uh, uh, your word, Lord, and uh, as we approach the the word of God, we want to make sure that we're coming before the God of the word to give us understanding into these things. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, truly speak to us, Lord, from uh, this text. Uh, Father, that you would also bring comfort uh, to us. Uh, Father, that you would help us to recognize uh, who's truly in charge, the God who is sovereign. And, uh, Father, I pray that in the, the days ahead, which are uncertain uh, from our vantage point, uh, Father, that we would recognize that there is a God who uh, controls every day. And, uh, Father, that uh, uh, in the end that, uh, that you will uh, bring order and uh, uh, that every knee will finally bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. Just want to remind you that this is a first hand account written by Daniel himself, Uh, We know this not only because of the first-person pronouns used throughout the book, but Jesus himself affirms that this is a book written from the pen of Daniel in uh, the New Testament. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 24, uh, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet... Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus himself affirms that Daniel was written by Daniel. There's some modern critics who try to argue against the authorship of Daniel uh, because of the accuracy of his prophecies, uh, but that's not a problem for those of us who believe in the inspiration of God, and uh, that God is a God who can see the future and can give Daniel uh, what's to come in the future. Uh, So this is a book that's divinely inspired, accurate, first-hand account of what took place during Daniel's time. And this passage introduces us to a dark time in Israel's history. Uh, The golden age of Israel was long gone. Uh, During the reigns of David and Solomon, Israel experienced uh, peace and prosperity, expansion, prosperity in the land. The queen of Sheba even came uh, to Israel in 1 Kings 10 and verse 7. And it says that uh, she didn't believe the reports until her eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told that you exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard speaking to to Solomon. Uh, but that was over three hundred years uh, from this point, and by now Israel was significantly uh, diminished in power and influence. And the world powers of this time were Egypt uh, to the south and to the west was uh, and to the west and Babylon to the east, Assyria, the other world power was on the north, and uh, uh, they were defeated by Babylon. Uh, The leader named Nebuchadnezzar defeated them in the Battle of Carchemish, 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar overthrew the Assyrian Empire and he followed up his victory by marching through his newly conquered lands. Uh, Israel was actually kind of subservient to to Egypt at this time. And uh, he marches through these conquered lands demanding that they serve him. And the first chapter of Daniel describes the first of three deportations to Babylon. And uh, the first being in 605 BC, there was a second in 597, and the third in 586 that ended with the destruction of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar was so powerful that even Egypt backed off, left some of their territories over to him. And like I said, one of those smaller nations that Egypt controlled was Judah. But now in the time of their greatest need... Uh, Egypt was nowhere to be seen. God stripped away from Judah every external form of security so that they would turn to the Lord. That was the the purpose, that they would turn to him. And if you're going to stand firm during times of turmoil, you need to know, who do you turn to? Who do you turn to during a time of, of turmoil? And in this passage, we're going to learn about five external securities that God sovereignly removed from Judah Uh, but we'll also learn about the trust that they should have had in a sovereign God. And Daniel and his friends understood something that the nation of Judah had yet to understand, uh, that God was to be trusted. Uh, Again, in uh, Daniel chapter 1, look at verse 1 again. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And here we're introduced to the first thing that Judah lost, and it was national security. National security. Jerusalem was the capital of, of Judah, Southern Kingdom, suffered defeat uh, the, where uh, Jerusalem was located. And uh, when you look at this on the surface, you think like this shouldn't be happening. I mean, this is this is the city of God. You know, Jerusalem is the city of God. In uh, Psalm eighty-seven, in verse one, it says, "His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God." Speaking of Jerusalem, you know, I thought God would be the defender of his people. Why is this happening? Why does it seem like God is forsaking his people? Uh, if you want to answer to that, uh, you can flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Look, Flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you want to know why God was giving this people over, you have to look no further than his own words. Look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, starting at verse 1. Here God says, now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord. Drop down to verse uh, 15. It says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God. To observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Uh, Drop down to verse 25. It says, The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies, and you will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Why was this happening? It was happening because God is faithful to keep his covenant. And God is doing exactly what he said that he would do. And this is what Daniel confesses. If you flip back over to the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter chapter 9, Daniel confesses the sins of the nation before God. And he recognizes that all these things are happening to them because this is exactly what the Lord said he would do. Daniel chapter 9, look at verse 4 says here, it says, and I pray to the Lord my God and confess and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. That's what God was doing. Keeping his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps uh, keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets who spoke in thy name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. If you look in uh, verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. And Because of their unfaithfulness, Judah was stripped of her national security, defeated before her enemies. And I would ask you, in our day, what, what promise of national security do any of us have from the Lord? You know, you think about Israel was promised security if they obey him, you know, uh, we don't even have that promise as a nation, and we expect that God's going to continue to grant us security, right? And, uh, you know, you have that phrase that's repeated so often, you know, God bless America. My question would be, why? Who's asking the question, why? Why should God bless America. Why should God bless America when America doesn't bless God? When Jeremiah prophesied about the judgment that was to come upon Judah, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 19, he explains that your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. The dread of me is not in you. What is he saying? You don't fear me. (laughs) You know, there's commands and you don't really care about what I command. And who would question that we as a nation don't have a dread of God? (laughs) Right here in uh, Maryland, there's a a bill being considered that would allow a baby who survived an abortion to die without care and no investigation would take place. And there would be no legal penalty applied. That they would allow a survived child to die. And are you telling me that we're a nation that God should bless? God in his sovereignty could remove our national security from us. And in many ways, he already has, right? We're we're not as secure as uh, we once thought of ourselves to be. There's threats at home. There's threats abroad. And the question for us is where will we turn when it becomes clear that our national security is being stripped away from us? Where are we going to turn? It should cause us to turn where? It should cause us to turn to the Lord, right? Like, that's where we should turn. That's not where Judah turned. Instead of Judah turning to the Lord, they started turning to the other nations around them. When when they felt like they were endangered... They started going to the other nations, and, and Jeremiah, who lived during this time when uh, uh, Judah was about to be taken over by Babylon, he mocked their attempts to try to get security elsewhere. Jeremiah 2, and verse 18, he says, but now what are you doing on the road to Egypt? What, what are you doing going over there for? To drink the waters of the Nile? Or what are you doing on the road to Assyria? To drink the waters of the Euphrates? Basically, he's, he's saying, "Like, do you think you can go to these nations for help? You know, just, just going over there to get a drink from the, the river? They're, they're not going to be able to help you. Do you understand that? That's what Jeremiah is saying. Later on, Jeremiah says this in chapter 3 and verse 36. Why do you go around so much changing your way? Also, you shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From this place also you shall go out with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you shall not prosper with them. You're not going to find help there. And they also trusted in their false gods. And God mocks them with these words. Jeremiah 2.28. But where are your gods, which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in a time of trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. As many cities as you have is as many gods as you have. Why, why don't you go to them now? You know, you're in trouble. Why don't you go to the guys that you were praying to before? You know, you're bowing down to them. Why don't you go there? They they were going everywhere else but to the God above them. These things should have caused Judah to turn to God. And my question for us is, is that where we go when our security is being removed? Where do you go when things are too difficult for you to manage? (laughs) Where do you go when you have nobody else to depend on? You know, for some of us, you know, we have security in our our finances. Oh, the stock market's dropping. What am I going to do now? Material possessions. Physical health, our jobs, our education, our friends, our family. Where where do you turn? What do you hang on to when you think everything else is going to give out? Do you hang on to the Lord? (laughs) Because you know that he's the only place that you can go? Judah was being placed in a position where she would have to turn to the Lord, but she didn't. And my greatest prayer, even today for Ukraine, is that they would turn to the Lord. They would turn to the Lord. You know, I pray for peace, I pray for the war to end, but what I pray for more than anything else is that they would turn to the Lord and recognize that he's the only place of security in the same way that I would pray for our own nation if we were under attack. You know, in addition to praying for peace and safety, what would I be praying for? Lord, let these people turn to you. I mean, would, would today be the day that we finally recognize that we can't find security in ourselves, that security is not to be found in the White House? Or at the Pentagon. That's not where your security is going to be found. I would pray that our nation would drop to its knees and turn to the Lord. Because he is the only place that you can find eternal security. Turn to Jesus Christ and find life. And if you're out here today and you haven't yet turned to Jesus Christ, what in the world are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? There's nowhere else that you can turn to and find hope. (laughs) There is hope nowhere else. The only hope that you have is in Jesus Christ. And you have no idea when everything else that you're trusting in is going to give out on you. And believe me, it will. It will. One day you won't be able to find anybody or anyone to turn to. And it's better to find that out and recognize it now before it's too late, right? And before you finally approach the, the throne of Jesus Christ and you're forced to your knees to bow before him, and it's coming out of your mouth, I confess you as Lord. Why not confess him as Lord now? If if you're out here, the Bible lets us know that there's a God who created you, he owns you. He created you for himself, he created you for his glory. But instead of mankind living for the glory of God, he lived for himself. He wanted the control for himself. And that's how everybody born into this world has lived. Doing it for themselves. Every one of us, the Bible says, has gone his own way like sheep. We've gone astray. We've all turned aside, gone our own way. And what the Lord has done because of his mercy and his grace is he sent his son, Jesus Christ. The only one who was faithful. The only one who honored God completely with his life. The beloved son of God who lived a life that we could not live. Perfect life. A perfect obedience he gave to God. So that when he offered his life, his life was a perfect sacrifice. When he died on the cross, it was not for any sins that he committed. He gave his life up voluntarily. He laid down his life on behalf of everyone who would ever believe and trust in him. And if you're willing to recognize your rebellion against God, that God, I've been living life as if I've been in charge and I'm not... I'm willing to turn my life over to you. I, I trust in the Son of God. I trust in the one who lived a perfect life in my place. The one who, who died, a death that he did not deserve. That was my death. I deserved that death for my rebellion because I turned against you. Because I sought every other God besides you. I deserve the death. And Jesus Christ died in my place. He took upon himself my penalty. If I would repent and trust in him so that you can be forgiven of your sins and offered eternal life that is the gospel that is good news that's what the word gospel means it's good news good news i can i can i can be forgiven of my sins and the life of jesus christ can be placed on my account i can be given a perfect record not a record that i've earned but a record that jesus has earned will you recognize that you can't find security anywhere else but there <laughs> Nowhere else to find security but right there. What are you hanging on to and what are you waiting for if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ? But here, Judah was robbed of her national security. Can't find hope there. Next thing, Judah was robbed of not only her national security but her visible authority. Look at Daniel chapter 1 again. Look at verse 2. Visible authority. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The king of of Judah. This this is our our visible ruler, the visible authority. The nation of Judah was utterly humiliated by King Nebuchadnezzar. Humiliation of the the leader is uh, transferred to the nation. This is is our humiliation. He's taken our king. Actually, Judges chapter 1 gives us a, a picture of the kind of treatment that kings received. Uh, when they were taken, uh, there was a king by the name of Adonai Bezek, a ruler of the Canaanites, who was captured by Judah. In Judges chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, They found Adonai Bezek and Bezek and fought against him. They defeated the Canaanites and the Parasites, but Adonai Bezek fled. They pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Uh, you want to talk about being humiliated, you know, captured by your oppressors and your, your appendages are cut off. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes Cut off. Used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done. So God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Says so this: this is this is how it goes. This is what I do to kings when when I capture them. Now the same thing's going to happen to me. I'm going to be humiliated. You know, have my toes and thumbs cut off, and I'm going to be forced to pick up scraps under the table. That's that's what they would do to kings that they captured. It's not a good thing to be a defeated ruler you're at the mercy of your, your captors. And, and this is what happened to Judah. Second Chronicles 36 lets us know in, a, in verse 5 that Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon. You know, just, just imagine your, your president you know, your prime minister, bound up with a chain and being led away, dragged away. This is what was happening to Judah. According to Second Kings 24 and verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar actually released him, didn't, you know, cut off his uh, uh, thumbs and, and toes to make him beg for scraps, but uh, he allowed him to live for another three years. But this was a disgrace. Our, our king was chained like livestock. And again, this would have given the appearance that, you know, God, are, have you abandoned us? Have you left us? You know, Judah might have, you know, assumed that, you know, maybe that happens to other kings, but not our king. You know, isn't God faithful to the Davidic throne? You know, Psalm 18 verse 50 says, he gives great diligence to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And we know that ultimately God did not abandon David's throne, but from all appearances, it looked like the throne was being forsaken. Their visible leadership being removed. Who's the visible leadership for you? You know, maybe it's uh, political leaders, teachers, pastors, parents. Where do you go when your visible leadership is removed? Who do you look to? What happens when your leaders fail, when they fall? It's a test of commitment, isn't it? One of uh, Judah's good and faithful kings was a man by the name of Uzziah. Remember that? Second Chronicles chapter 26 reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem and then his reign ended in a disaster when he became so proud and he acted corruptly. Second Chronicles 26 and verse 16 says, he acted corruptly. He was unfaithful to the Lord as God for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Major blow to the nation of, of Judah. And he's actually put to death isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 isaiah thinks back on this time it says in the year of king uzziah's death this was our faithful leader this was our visible leadership he he led us faithfully for 52 years We've, we've known stability underneath him but in the year of king uzziah's death who did i see i saw the lord i saw the lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple When the the visible leadership is gone, where do I look? I lift my eyes to the hill from where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. That's where I need to look. Yes, leaders will fail you. Leaders might be taken away. But where do you go when your visible leadership is gone? You look to the Lord. Because that's ultimately who I trust in. Our trust has to be in the Lord. Lift your eyes to the throne that's lofty and exalted in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We need to look to the Lord. Number three, the next thing that was taken from Judah was religious ceremony. Look again at uh, chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, after the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, it says, also along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And everything, again, seems wrong with this picture. You know, the the vessels of God were not common dishes. These were the the items used for the worship of Israel. to, To bring these vessels into the house of a false god would even give the appearance that this god was in charge. You know, this false god is stronger than my god because he's able to take my god's stuff. The Babylonians, at this point, seem like they're victorious over the true god. They had multiple gods, and their their chief deity was a god by the name of Marduk, according to Jeremiah 50 and verse 2, a a god of the storm. Babylon is uh, here identified with Shinar. If you look there again, it says, and he brought them to the land, in verse 2, middle of verse 2, he brought them to the land of Shinar. Where, Where do we see that in scripture? Shinar was actually the ancient site of Babel. If you uh, flip back to uh, Genesis chapter 11, it lets us know that Shinar was the ancient site of Babel. And if you remember, Babel was synonymous with opposition to God. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 2, it says, It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone. They uh, used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and tower whose top will reach into the heavens. And let us make a name for who? For God? No. Let us make a name for ourselves. A name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. It was God who told them to fill the earth and subdue it. And they said, no, we're going to stay right here. And we're going to build our our own tower. We're going to reach the sky. We're going to reach the heavens. We can do it ourselves. We'll make a name for ourselves. They stood in opposition to God. And here, Daniel kind of brings that back up. They're bringing these false gods right into this ancient site where people oppose God. That's the imagery that's brought up by using the ancient name Shinar. It's like Daniel's kind of rubbing their faces in it. The vessels of God are in the land of Shinar and in the house of a Babylonian God. The very temple had been defiled. items that were used for worship of God are taken. It seems like God is defeated. And of course, we know that's not true. God's not defeated even in a a foreign land. In the book of Daniel, uh, one of the purposes of the book is to prove that even in a foreign land, the God is still in charge. That's why Nebuchadnezzar praises God in chapter 4 as the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. That's why King Darius praises God and makes a decree that in all my dominion and kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. That's why Belshazzar is uh, making common use of the vessels. Remember the same vessels that were stolen by Babylon. Here Belshazzar is going to drink from them and then his death sentence is written by a hand that appears out of nowhere. It's like, no, you're not in charge here. Yeah, the vessels might have been taken, but God is still the one who's in charge. Before a period of time, the ceremonial items were removed and it seemed like worship was being put to a halt. How were the children of God to serve God without making use of these external items for worship? Vessels were gone and in 586 B.C., even the temple would be gone. Is that going to keep you from following the Lord when everything that you've used, everything that you've you know uh, had in the past is objects of, of worship, places of worship, when they're all gone? What if we had our churches taken from us? What if we had our, our Bibles burned? What if we had our our freedoms taken? Will we have enough within our, our souls to continue the worship of God? And, and don't think that it can't happen. <laughs> don't think that it can't happen. I remember... Uh, uh, we were at a, a, a pastor's retreat and, and Chuck was saying, you know, why don't, we, why don't we just sit down and try to think through, like, you know, if, if we were locked away, didn't have a Bible, you know, could we come up with the Gospel of John just from memory? You know, everybody just kind of like try to fill in a piece, oh, I remember that verse, I remember that verse. I mean, there, there are people who have had to go through that in history, Right where they've been removed from the, the normal, you know, kind of means of, of, of worship, the, the extreme circumstances where they've been removed from the fellowship of believers. And uh, this is not a, a verse to say that, uh, that we don't, you know, treasure, you know, the, the regular fellowship that we have within church buildings and Bibles and, you know, things like that. But uh, there are times in, in history under extreme circumstances where those things are taken away. I've even heard that uh, right now in Ukraine that thousands of Ukrainians are being pulled away into Russian territory. Thousands of people being carted away, removed from their homes. What are you going to do when everything that's familiar to you that you, know, you used to, to do to gather together to worship is, is removed? Are you going to have enough within your own spirit to say, I'm, I'm still going to praise God? Will, will you be like uh, Paul and Silas, you know, in chains, but still praising the Lord, raising their voices up to the Lord God. This should be the the, the kind of attitude that should be part of our lives. Daniel uh, himself exhibited this in uh, Daniel chapter 6. Even though he's removed from the place of worship, removed from Jerusalem, it says that he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. He continued to worship God, even though the temple was removed, even though the items of the temple were removed. He still had in his heart that that's, that's where I'm going to turn. I, I remember those days, and I remember my God. What do we truly trust in? What are we truly holding on to? Number four, fourth thing that was taken was their physical geography. Physical geography. Look again at uh, verse 3. Says, then the king ordered Ashvanaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning and knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. This is the, the Babylonian version of the college acceptance letter. <laughs> you know, we, we've taken a look at your transcript. SAT scores, and you've been accepted to the University of Babylon. Congratulations. As they, they went through uh, Jerusalem, they found among the men, the, the young men there, you know, who, who are the guys who are the smartest, the best looking, you know, the ones who have the greatest potential? Who, who are those that we can enlist into service for Babylon? And they were smart about it because they assumed that it would be a lot easier to rule a nation if we rule you through your own people. We'll take your people, we'll train them, and then we'll send them back to rule over you. And this was the the first, like I said, of three Babylonian deportations. And uh, the first included Daniel and his friends. What they did was uh, make a list of the best and the the brightest, the who's who of Jerusalem. And Daniel and his friends showed up in that list. And uh, actually, according to um, Plato... In Persia, they began the education of youths at 14 years of age. And another Greek philosopher, uh, uh, Xenophon, uh, said that it was the 17th year uh, when they completed their training. You know, the three years, and it's uh, uh, assumed that Babylon uh, followed the same custom. So, so they, they took youths right around the age of 14, 14, 15, and they trained them up for, for three years. So these were young men in their teens when they were taken. Their youth was not an obstacle to, to high achievement within Jerusalem, and now they were taken in order to become slaves of Babylon. And Babylon's plan was to educate them for three years, and the idea was, uh, if you give me three years, I'll have you for the rest of your life. <laughs> give, me, give me three years to educate you to poor our learning, our language, our values, you know, give me the time to pour all that into you, and I'll have you for the rest of your life. They said, only give me three, and how much do we usually give universities? Four? (laughs) High school, four? I'm not arguing against going to high school or going to college, but uh, what I am telling you is that you can't be naive, right? If three years away from home was enough to break these Israelites, what do we think four years might do to some of our young people? And what has it already done to some? And all they wanted to do was reprogram them. Reprogram them. Remove them from all their familiar surroundings and reprogram them in Babylon. Uh, One commentator imagines the experience. Undoubtedly, this was a sad and miserable time for these young Jewish captives. The journey from Jerusalem to Babylon would have amounted to roughly 680 miles if we assume they marched along one of the northern trade routes through Damascus and then down the Euphrates River. As they neared the end of their long and arduous journey, the glorious specter of the ancient city of Babylon began to appear on the horizon. Babylon was a larger city, more fortified, more ornate than anything the Hebrew youths had seen. Though the, Through the city ran the mighty Euphrates River, the lifeline of Mesopotamia. As they drew closer, there was a large bridge for them to cross before entering one of the many glorious gates of the city. Just imagine how intimidating the scene must have been for these Hebrew youths. Daniel had not chosen to be here. He was forced to leave behind his parents, his family, his beloved Jerusalem, and the Hebrew culture with its focus upon the worship of Yahweh at the beautiful temple of Solomon. These things he would never see again for the rest of his life. He would be a resident of Babylon, probably only a young man of 15 years at the time. He now faced the daunting challenge of remaining faithful and true to the God of the Bible while living in the midst of an idolatrous and pagan civilization. And some of you may find yourself in the midst of an idolatrous and pagan civilization. Maybe that's at school. Maybe that's on your job. Maybe you're deployed like one of our members was and uh, encouraged to sin while he was away. Like I said, thousands of Ukrainians are being forcibly relocated into Russian territory. What if, what if that were you? <laughs> Would you be able to stand? Could you remain faithful and true to the God of the Bible while living in the midst of a, an idolatrous and pagan civilization? Would you uh, think that what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon? Or uh, would you be willing to submit yourself to the, to the rule of, of God and say that I will not bow? <laughs> I will not bow. And to think of this again, these are teenagers 15 to 18 year olds who are willing to put their lives on the line for the sake of the God of scripture. What, what kind of young people are we trying to raise? Right? Like we, we, this is, these are the kinds of young people that we want. People who are willing to put their lives on the line, even at a young age, that I will serve the Lord in the days of my youth. And if, if you're a young person here, you're not too young to follow the Lord with all of your heart. To, to to give him over completely the reins of your life, to say that Lord, I want to be counted for you. You can. This could be your kind of testimony that that I will dedicate myself to the Lord of Scripture. Young people who gave their lives over. It was uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse who noted that uh, during his time, the average age of forty thousand people listed in the Who's Who in America uh, that run the country was under twenty eight years old. 20 under 28 years old 40,000 people on the who's who list who's who list the average age was 28 Which meant that many of them were under 28 These were men who were disciplined early in life and ready to make Sacrifices don't don't underestimate if you're here uh, young person don't underestimate what god can do with your life Right right where you are god can use you right where you are number five the final thing that was taken from judah was their Identities Their individual identities. Look again at uh, verse 4. It says, And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned them new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The purpose of this education wasn't just to equip them to serve in political science, business administration. Ultimately, they wanted them to be Babylonian in their hearts. That's what they wanted. You know, oh, I want to be a Babylonian in my heart, in my heart. That's that's what they wanted. I want you to be a Babylonian in your heart. And they're depositing all these aspects of Babylonian culture into their lives. Culture's been defined as all the modes of thought, behavior, production that are handed down from generation to generation. Theories about how the world operates. Notions about what is right and wrong. Traditional beliefs, legends, and customs. Norms that you should adjust your behavior to. Intellectually, they wanted them to think like Babylonians. In both language and literature, they wanted these Israelites to appreciate the superior value of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was actually a Chaldean, which was a community that rose in power and was joined to the Babylonians. And the Chaldeans were known for being experts in magic, enchanting, and, and sorcery. These are the kinds of things that they were being taught. They wanted them to be Babylonians emotionally. They wanted their affections. They, they believed they could win them over through their stomachs, right? The way to a man's heart, you know, through, through the stomach. They thought if, if we feed you the choice food and the choice wine, which the king himself drinks, you'll, you'll just come to appreciate so much. You know, that's the, the mercy and grace of great Babylon. Couldn't get any better food than the food that they, they had. This would have been a, a flattering gift for the captives, extremely offensive to refuse it. The term that's used for the rich food is actually said to be an old Persian term, meaning honorific gifts for the royal table. You're you're going to receive the honorific gifts that are fit for the king. That's what we're going to give you. And finally, they wanted them to be Babylonians volitionally. They wanted their wills. They wanted their allegiance. You know, haven't you seen that we've just defeated your God? And they assumed that the Israelites would succumb to the pressure, give in to the superior might and wisdom of the foreign gods, and this was indicated in the, the names that they gave to Daniel and his friends. All of the names that they gave to Daniel and his friends uh, were related to foreign deities. You know, the, the names that were given to uh, uh, Daniel and his friends all were in relationship to their God. You know, Daniel, you know, El from Elohim, you know, Hananiah from, you know, Yahweh. Uh, so it's, you know, God is judge, Daniel, the, the the word for God is judge. They called him Belteshazzar, which is a reference to their God, Bel. And uh, Hananiah, God is gracious, but they called him Shadrach. You know, I'm fearful of God and one of their false deities. Mishael means who is like God and they called him Meshach. You know, the one who is a little account, as one author puts it. Azariah means God has helped me. And they called him Abednego, servant of the shining one. And all these related to these new deities. We're going to give you new names. You've got a new name now. You know, your name's Toby. <laughs> You're no longer going to be called whatever you were before. You know, you got a new name now. And Daniel didn't object to uh, the new name. He didn't object to reading their literature. I'll I'll read what you have for me to read. He didn't object to uh, his name being changed, uh, the pagan label. He didn't object to any of that. But what he did object to was uh, switching gods. (laughs) Yeah, I, like there's, there's these other things, external things, like I'll, I'll, I'll learn your language and I'll, I'll read your books and, you know, I'll, uh, I'll come to the table, but there's certain things that I won't do. I'll, I won't defile myself and I'm not going to switch gods. James Montgomery Boy says he changed the men's names, but he could not change their hearts. They were true believers, and all the, the trappings of Babylon could not change that. And uh, we're going to learn about these four men who never buckled under the pressure. But uh, let me quickly remind you that there were more than four who entered into Babylon. Why, why, why did these four kind of rise to the surface? Because there were a lot who fell. There were a lot who came to the king's table and said, Hey, pass me pass me another one of those uh, pieces of meat over there. I'll take another, another side of ribs, please. There, there were people who, who accepted the kindness of the king. There were people who learned the language and the literature and they were taken over by Babylon. There were many people who instead of, you know, standing up when they were told to, to bow down, there were many people who bowed and were looking at the three Hebrew boys and saying, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> don't, don't you know that you're going to lose your life if you don't bow? There were many who were taken away into Babylon and many of them fell. Many of them fell. And these four were singled out over the vast majority because the vast majority didn't make a peep. You understand that? There were many who were taken, but there were not many who stood. And some entered Babylon on this day, and they lost their national security, their visible authority, their religious ceremony, their physical geography, their individual identity, and they also lost their God. That was enough to make them lose their minds and lose their God. But that's because they never had God in them. First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And my question for you is, what are you willing to give up your God for? Do you have a price as a believer? Are you willing to turn the true God in if the price is too high? Or are you willing to follow God even when it becomes dangerous? Everything else stripped away. You know, when, when, you're, when you're whittled down to like the core of who you are, what's left? Is, is God left there? Even if it's dangerous to continue to follow this God? C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, The Silver, Silver, Silver Chair, if I can get that out, Silver Chair, he gives us this illustration of... Uh, of the sovereignty of God. He tells a story of a girl named Jill who finds herself transported to a land of Narnia and finds herself extremely thirsty. And she hears the sound of this running water and she moves toward it only to find that beside the stream of water was a lion. A lion right near to this place where she was going to get a drink. And the lion responded and says, uh, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Voice said again, if you're thirsty, you can come and drink. The lion said again, Are you not thirsty? Jill said, I'm I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, the lion said. Jill said, May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? The lion only answered with a low growl. She said, Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? The lion said, I make no promise. Do you eat girls, she said? He says, I've swallowed up boys and girls, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and kingdoms. And it didn't say this as if it were boasting. It didn't say it as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I love that line. You know, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and kingdoms. I swallow it all. Listen to the rest of Jill's encounter. She says, I dare not come and drink. The lion says, then you will die of thirst. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. The lion says, there is no other stream. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. And it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. And most of us are like Jill. We want Jesus to promise, if I come to you, just promise me that you won't do anything. Can, can you promise me that, uh, that you'll provide safety? Can, can you promise me that I won't lose my position or my power or my possessions? Can you promise me security, that I won't be rejected, that I won't be hurt if I come to you? And certainly, can you promise me my life? You know, am I going to live? But like Aslan, Jesus makes no such promises. He just says, come. <laughs> he just says, come. But what is promised is that Jesus will win in the end. What is promised is that if we're on his side, that we will ultimately win in the end. And what is promised is that if we come to Christ, he will satisfy us so that we will never thirst again. In John six thirty five, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Even if he chooses to slay us, will we trust him? Will you trust him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, this opportunity to take a look at your word. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, you will allow your, your word to uh, to give us resolve. Uh, Father, that uh, when all these different places of security are taken away from us, all the things that we, we look to, uh, whether it's our, our national security or uh, whether it's uh, uh, looking at uh, the, uh, uh, the security that we have in our geography or ceremonies. Uh, Father, if we're looking for security in our, our leadership, uh, Lord, or even our identity, how we've been identified, our culture, if we're looking for some kind of security in our culture, my uh, Father, I pray that we would only find security in you, and that we would look to you as our God, the, the author and the finisher of our faith. Uh, Father, that we would come to Christ, uh, even though uh, we may be slain by coming to Christ, uh, that, that Jesus uh, calls us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, to follow after him. Uh, but Father, if we, we come to Christ, we know that we've, we've come to the, the only place where we can find eternal security. Not security in, in this life. Christ doesn't promise us that. But he does promise us eternal security. And that in him, if we drink of his waters, that we'll never thirst again. Father, I pray that you would uh, uh, help us to to dedicate ourselves even afresh to you today. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.